Welcome to The Landscape, your show about America's parks and public lands. I'm Aaron Weiss at the Center for Western Priorities in Denver. And I'm Kate Gretzinger, your co-host in snowy Salt Lake City, Utah. Today on the podcast, we're chatting with the co-chairs of the America the Beautiful for All Coalition, a new group that came together to ensure conservation benefits marginalized and overly burdened communities. But before we get to that, let's do the news. So the big news since our last episode is a proposal from the Bureau of Land Management that would elevate the value of land conservation to the same level as oil and gas extraction or grazing or mining. To simplify a somewhat complicated proposal, BLM has always worked under a multiple-use mandate, of course, but it has never technically considered conservation to be a use of the land. So this is a huge deal that conservation advocates have been working on for years. It is very exciting to see this proposed rule in writing, and it is very much based in the plain language of FLIPMA, the the law that underlies all land management today. So BLM is currently holding a 75-day public comment period. After that, the agency will go back, make changes and adjustments, As we've talked about with oil and gas rulemakings, all of this has to go through the White House Office of Management and Budget as well, all of which is to say the clock is ticking if the Biden administration wants to get this rule done and locked in before it is at risk of being overturned by Congress if there is a change of administration in 2025. In other words, they have a year, maybe a few weeks beyond that to get this done, It is certainly possible since the draft rule is out, but they will have to make sure it stays on track to get done in time. I'm also sure we will get into more of the details of what this proposed rule contains as this first comment period draws to a close in a couple of months. One quick note before we get into the interview. We recorded this a few weeks ago before President Biden designated Kastner Range and Aviqua May National Monuments. You'll hear references to those monument proposals in our interview. We're excited to have Inse Witherspoon, Executive Director for the Children's Environmental Health Network and co-chair of the America the Beautiful for All Coalition, as well as Mark Magana, founder and CEO of Green Latinos and co-chair of the coalition here today. Inse, Mark, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thanks. We appreciate it. So let's jump right in. What is the America the Beautiful for All Coalition and why did you feel the need to create this group? Inse, why don't you take this one? Thank you so much. Uh, The America the Beautiful for All Coalition formed because the largest conservation goal of the century must also include the equity and health framing that is intrinsically connected. And by guiding uh, a coalition that looks and sounds like communities across America. So our vision, which is a, a new vision, if you will, by the way that we come together, is by uniting land, fresh water, oceans, public health, and justice-focused advocates across the country, that this coalition is working to advance our policy, our shared policy agenda that's led by our twin goals that motivate urgent action by the Biden administration and other policymakers while building long-term power. Awesome. Can you tell us a little bit more about which groups are in your coalition? Um, Mark, do you want to take this one? The coalition is involved a series of groups um, uh, that are covering a vast range of issues when it comes to public lands, uh, uh, groups like the Wilderness Society or 
when it comes to indigenous communities or Latino, Black, Asian, when it comes to frontline hunters and uh, uh, fishermen. Um, and so the broad, um, open-ended uh, gathering of groups to be able to come together to be able to do this work is what makes us so unique. And say, I, I want you to take a moment to explain what the Children's Environmental Health Network is. Um, we've had a number of folks from from Green Latinos on the podcast over the years, and, and Mark, we'll, we'll get there in a second. But uh, this is a first time for Children's Environmental Health Network. Yes, yes. Uh, so the Children's Environmental Health Network is a national nonprofit organization. Uh, we work to support states, and uh, we do work on an international level around our what we feel is vital mission uh, that for over three decades now, we've been working to protect all children from environmental hazards in the built, the biological and chemical environments that they come in most contact with. And we also work to reduce the impacts of climate change among our most vulnerable, con considering our children of today and tomorrow. So you might think that it is quite unique to see a science health focused organization with our mission in a leadership role or participating at all, quite frankly, in what many may view as exclusively a conservation movement. Uh, but that is actually the traditional siloed frame that we're working to intentionally break uh, as we champion for a just, healthy, and viable future for all species, including our environment. So we do feel, and from the beginning, we have felt that it is vital to ensure that we are strong champions for the intersections between justice, health, and our conservation movements. And we work to integrate preventive health strategies, child protective policy mechanisms, and have a proof of evidence in the communities that we serve in benefiting children. And inevitably all of us, right? When we look at the lens of the protective needs of a child and we create those buffers necessary, we mm -hmm. all benefit in that way. Um, so it became clear to me that this was an important place for our perspectives and our network to be. Mark, then same question to you. How how does that that intersection fit into the work that Green Latinos does, and and how did that contribute to the the creation of this coalition? Yeah, well, um, thanks for asking about us, uh, Green Latinos, which I'm very proud of as a founding uh, president and CEO, is a nationwide network of Latino, Latina, Latine environmental and conservation champions. We come together as a comunidad, a community of advocates um, to be able to break down historical barriers between different sectors of the movement as we build our own relationships and to build partnerships where we can share our unique access, resource, privilege, information that each of the sectors has that the other sectors need in order to succeed, in order to help our communities to achieve our environmental liberation. We serve as a convener of our members so that they can build those relationships and help each other. We're a capacity builder for our members so that they can come to us with their needs and we can direct them towards resources. And we're an advocacy coordinator to help to build advocacy power when it comes to issues like climate and clean air and public lands and ocean and clean water equity and clean transportation, sustainable communities, clean energy, and how we can really build our advocacy power to do that. All of these theories of change and the work that we do reflect very strongly within 
the America the Beautiful for All Coalition. And, and when Jamie Williams, the president of the Wilderness Society, who is a key backbone member of our team, reached out to me in October of 2021, he was interested in seeing how we could build an equitable and inclusive conservation movement that came together to advocate for the 30 by 30 goals in the administration's America the Beautiful for initiative. And I expressed to him that in order for this effort to be successful, we needed to look like America and reflect our priorities. And that it needed to be initiated and led by those that have been most hurt by nature deprivation and uh, center the needs of the indigenous, Latino, black and Asian communities so that we could also break down the historical barriers between the sectors of the movement. And so we quickly reached out to NSA, an amazing leader, because we knew we had to center the public health benefits of access to nature provides, especially when it comes to our little ones. And so being able to break down the different sectors, frontline communities, indigenous communities of color, legacy conservation groups, hunters and anglers, public health nonprofits, business, land trusts, and other in the broad community was key to how we were going to be able to to take down, build a table of tables that would allow us to communicate better and, and succeed in our efforts. Mark, um, that's a good segue into my next question, which is about Justice 40. Um, that's one of the twin goals that you guys listed in your recently released policy platform, policy agenda. Um, our listeners are familiar with 30 by 30, but maybe not with Justice 40. Do you mind telling us a little bit more about Justice 40 and what that means? Well, I'm impressed that your listeners are aware of 30 by 30. That, that means they're you know, highly aware. I'm sure that's because they listen to you. Um, and I'm excited. I'm excited that in the future, they'll be uh, much more aware of Justice 40 because we're speaking about it now. Um, it's very important. Justice 40, a White House initiative that uh, the president uh, announced in an executive order in his first week in office that aims to ensure that 40% of the benefits from federal investment, uh, mainly in climate and clean energy, uh, go to benefit disadvantaged communities. Uh, it, it, it is based on the recognition that low-income communities, communities of color, tribal communities, have historically borne a disproportionate burden of the environmental pollution and climate change impacts. And that we really do need to make an aggressive effort to make sure that the benefits of this new funding from the IRA, the IIJA, um, you know, hopefully the upcoming farm bill, the rescue bill from the, from the pandemic, um, to be able to really transition in the time that we have remaining to a clean energy economy that serves all through a just transition. And so for us, when it comes to 30 by 30, most of the language in the executive order goes towards climate and clean energy programs and climate and clean energy funding. It doesn't um, distinctly say conservation programs. So we want to make sure that this Justice 40 framework is applied to conservation programs so that we can also um, provide the tangible outdoor access to nature benefits to the same communities that have been historically underserved. And say, I want to ask about 
coalition building. I mean, in, in our little mountain west public lands focused corner of the conservation world, I, I sit on coalition calls with a half dozen, maybe 10 groups and, and getting folks on the same page is sometimes a challenge. You've got 150 groups in this coalition. How do you get that many groups, everyone with maybe a shared common vision, but certainly different individual policy priorities? How do you get everyone on the same page with something like this? No, it's a really good question. I think we've all seen and or been a part of coalitions, networks, initiatives that had great intent, great passion, great drive, and they don't last long, right? And so we've been very clear from the very beginning with strong intention, focus, and determination to ensure that we are looking at leadership and the connection of our leadership and our organizations and the missions. And that has been very true in the range of diversity uh, that we brought together on the steering committee, as well as the work groups where the brunt of this work really happens. Um, it's the lived experiences, it's the reflections, it's the challenges, it's the many ways that we actually have synergy, but haven't yet had a chance to really explore those as we're all aiming for the, the same things, a healthier, a just, uh, you know, brighter future for current and future generations. So we had an initial call that had about a, a few hundred of people with intrigue and interest on what this America the Beautiful for All, you know, coalition was, how did it tie and connect to the administration's initiative? And that list continues to grow and is well over a thousand people um, right now. And that's not including those that are following us um, and going to the website, um, America the Beautiful uh, coalition.org. We think our secret sauce is also having an amazing and strong backbone team. It's the first time that I've seen something like this, and I've been a part of a lot of coalitions and some that have lasted definitely, you know, longer than maybe expected. But this core infrastructure of built in, very capable, highly skilled and passionate uh, team members who really continue to keep us moving forward in a very methodical and intentional and careful way again, stressing the relationships. So we're uh, very blessed to have extended staff from and leaders from Green Latinos, from the Wilderness Society, and soon to have more capacity for the Children's Environmental Health Network to kind of keep us going and answering questions and having those one-on-ones and really onboarding all of our leaders. They had independent one-on-one -on -one discussions, um, a lot of us included uh, at the steering committee level too, when we were onboarding and bringing on and screening the leaders who we feel would be most um, adequate and ready to go to help lead the work of the policy agenda setting at the work group level. Um, so we worked hard to field a nomination process for our work group leaders uh, and also included one-on-one -on -one discussions, but also really made sure that our work groups, which include leaders in freshwater, public uh, lands, oceans, urban parks, green space, wildlife, and in priority projects and campaigns were you know, really called upon and we talked about their ability to serve and to give and to put all personal agendas aside. That's another thing, you know, really making sure that we come, bring our skills and experiences and yet allow ourselves the flexibility to learn and grow together. And I'll also say that we've been using this model of fist to five that many of your listeners might be used to, where literally we use our fists, um, you know, closed fist 
uh, means I'm, I'm not really feeling <laughs> this or this direction, you know, open uh, five uh, is the best. And then of course the variance of anywhere of any of your fingers in between. We've used this already and we'll continue to use this to kind of get a temperature pulse as we continue to move on key decision. We understand 100, 100% consensus is probably not uh, always going to be achieved. Uh, in fact, that's, again, the, the beauty of our diversity. Uh, but what we do hope and continue to strive for, and which we have achieved at least already with the release of the policy platform high-level uh, goals here is that, you know, we're hearing each other, we're adjusting. There are a lot of discussions, even getting us to the release at the end of January uh, for this policy platform. And no doubt there will be more, but making sure that people are heard, making sure that uh, we allow this pathway uh, for dissension. Uh, and especially if we get to a point where, you know, majority is just not feeling a certain direction or set of recommendations or actions, you know, to be able to walk away from that and focus in on those areas where we are finding synergy. Cool. Wow. I mean, I can't imagine how much work went into that because it's a long document with very detailed principles. Um, and we're going to get into some of those right now. Um, some of the core principles of the agenda include ensuring conservation benefits, excuse me, ensuring conservation benefits communities of color, as well as prioritizing conservation that connects intact ecosystems. Um, those jumped out at me because um they seem, I mean, both important, but also maybe sometimes at odds. And I'm curious how you can prioritize both of those. Um, Mark, do you mind telling us what that looks like in practice, as well as potentially any examples that you might um, have handy? Well, you want to be able to make sure that we give access to our communities, to the sites that we have, these amazing, iconic national sites while also protecting them. They, I don't think that they are on separate tracks or that they have to be done separately. In order, for, in order to build a larger base of people who want to defend our large public lands, our iconic public lands and create more parks and create more trees, you have to have people who have access to it and experience it. It isn't until I experience the wonders of the Arctic Circle, the, the, the Alaska, that I wanted to make sure that I was part of the effort to defend it. And that's, that's true of our national parks, our community green spaces, that we really have to make sure that the access is there. And it doesn't mean that you know, humans are coming over to trample it and overtake it. It's that we we work in symbiosis with the land and the animals and the wildlife. And that has, that's something that has to be educated and you can't educate unless you're there. And so that being able to do both at the same time is going to be key. So I recently, recently listened to a great podcast episode about justice 40 actually on a show called a matter of degrees, which I highly recommend to anyone here. Um, and they mentioned that there are actually a ton of federal dollars available right now for projects that comply with Justice 40. And say, so, do you mind telling us about um, how those dollars can be leveraged for communities and conservation, um, as well as any examples of projects that um, have received federal funding um, and comply with Justice 40? Sure. Uh, I 
not sure if any of your listeners know about the Justice 40 Accelerator. So it's serving frontline communities that are looking to apply for federal funds across multiple agencies uh, that are flowing from the administration's executive order. And this accelerator includes informational briefings and resources to learn about federal programs and eligibility, which at times can be a huge barrier to any uh, response to a federal grant, Uh, philanthropic capacity building grants for dozens of eligible organizations, uh, project pre-development workshops, all kinds of partnership and networking opportunities, and technical expertise to support successful applications for federal funding, including accounting, legal, and government grant writing. I think the world of this, I think more of this needs to happen because uh, for far too long, even well before Justice 40, it's been just a very known fact that even certain nonprofits at a national level of certain size have had barriers to competing uh, with you know large federal grants, which of course usually come with larger dollars and related responsibilities after receiving. So this has been fantastic to see this type of support. And it's the Solutions Project, Elevate, Groundswell, Partnership for Southern Equity, and Hummingbird Firm that are coming together in partnership to provide this wealth of resource. So that's that's one thing that I'd love listeners to know about. And they have a variety of cohorts that started in 2021. And just some of them, it's amazing. If you go to the website, you can see a variety of um, incredible organizations with fantastic and vitally important missions uh, who are gaining experience and and capacity. Some of them include Harambe House, Citizens for Environmental Justice, West Georgia's Farmers Collaborative, Emerald Cities Initiative, Appalachian Voices, We Act for Environmental Justice, Green Door Initiative out of Detroit, uh, the Bayou City Waterkeeper, Healthy Babies Project, Urban Tree Connection, and Green the the Church, just to name a few. So really encouraging your listeners to check out this accelerator and see how it might be beneficial. When it comes to the federal government, just to name a few, the Department of Energy, for example, has grants for energy efficiency and renewal energy improvements at public school facilities. So that program is going, it, it's, I believe it's not even uh, in existence yet, but it's soon to come. It's going to provide competitive grants to make energy efficient, renewable energy and alternative fuel vehicle upgrades and improvements at public schools. And then energy future grants. Uh, are providing financial and technical assistance to support clean energy and economic development planning by state, local, and tribal governments. So they're emphasizing in that program community-centered partnerships or joint applications that include community-based organizations. And EPA has at least 73 or so as of the summer related programs that they are also including under their Justice 40 metrics, which impact a lot of existing programs that EPA has been funding and supporting for years, but giving them expanded reach. So children and other sensitive populations and agency coordination that's expected there, the Brownfields Project Management Program, their Environmental Justice Program, their Drinking Water State Revolving Fund, the Clean Water State Revolving Fund, you know, just to name a few. And you can go to whitehouse.gov under the Justice 40 portion of that site and see a range of agencies at the federal government level that have current and or plan to soon release uh, grant mechanisms that we hope your listeners will find useful. Oh, I'm going to take a moment to breathe from just listening to that list. Uh, and, and all of that is without even getting into what's happening this year, which is it's a farm bill 
year. And we, we touched on this in our Colorado River episode. A lot of folks don't think of the farm bill as being a conservation bill, but it really is I mean, one of these massive bills with all sorts of things, touches on nutrition, agriculture, and conservation. So the platform from America the Beautiful for All calls on Congress to pass a 2023 farm bill that invests deeply in conservation. Mark, what what could that look like? And specifically, what should the farm bill be looking at to make sure it's investing in equitable conservation? Yeah, um, it is interesting, but with a with a split Congress and a split um, uh, split government, um, it seems like the farm bill will be one of our only uh, authorizing opportunities to pass legislation in 2023. And it is, like you said, something uh, the Farm Bill, pe- people don't think about that part of the Farm Bill is conserving lands and waters um, and natural resource conservation. And it, it is associated with croplands and pasture lands, but programs to help build soil resilience provide clean drinking water, limit the impacts of extreme weather events, such as drought and flooding, provide healthy habitats for wildlife, mitigate agriculture greenhouse gas emissions, and support sustainable and productive food and farming systems are all included in the Farm Bill. And um, within our coalition, you know, efforts that we partner with, with the Native Farm Bill Coalition and National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition to advocating a bill that really invests in resilience of our local and regional food systems and resilience and land stewardship and using traditional ecological indigenous knowledge uh, when it comes to finding conservation solutions. Um, You know, I think being able to recognize that the answers are within our reach that indigenous communities um, had things like acequias that moved water where it needed to be um, from rivers to out to be able to um, to feed plants and and so for us it is how we can do things to push for investments from the Farm Bill, the Inflation Reduction Act, to be able to make sure that local conservation efforts, historically disadvantaged farmers and producers and ranchers, and have the resources to meet this historic moment and, and, and use what they do to confront the climate and uh, wildlife extinction crisis. Mark, sticking with you here, uh, you mentioned that having this split Congress, you know, the Farm Bill might one of the be one of the only bipartisan bills that passes with any conservation measures. Um, of course, the president can also act on conservation, and I believe this was part of your agenda. Or sorry, your your policy platform as well, um, calling on Biden to use the Antiquities Act to implement protections. Um, Oftentimes, the Antiquities Act has been painted as sort of a top-down tool, and I'm curious if you could talk about how the Antiquities Act and the President can actually, um, or talk about how the President can actually use the Antiquities Act to honor the wishes of communities, if there are any proposals out there right now that you guys um, are watching or endorsing. Um, I'd love to know about that. Yeah, I, I remember 
the very first time I heard of the Antiquities Act, I was watching a West Wing episode, <laughs> and they were they were bringing it up as a unilateral immediate solution to essentially taking access, you know, uh, grabbing a power grab on some land. Um, and so, you know, it, it made for a fantastic storyline as they discovered they could do this executive with the Antiquities Act. But, you know, we do believe that this is a fantastic opportunity for the president and the administration to utilize uh, the executive and administrative authorities that are found in the Antiquities Act to create national monument proclamations that are on behalf of community-led efforts to protect significant, iconic lands and waters. And, um, you know, the president doesn't do this like the show, you know, showed like overnight. These are years in the making. They direct the federal agencies to undertake a public process seeking input from local communities, stakeholders, and interested parties, public meetings, hearings, outreach, getting soliciting input and feedback on the proposed designation. It's almost frustrating how long, no, it isn't almost, it is frustrating how long it takes to be able to get uh, a administration like the Biden administration who, who does this properly um, to be able to uh, finish their extensive reviews and finally determine that a site is suitable for a monument designation. And so examples like Castor Range National Monument in Texas and near El Paso and the Aviquame National Monument in uh, Southern Nevada are, are really areas that we think deserve protection. You know, Emmett Till and the Mamie Till Mobley National Monuments. And, and so many of these have been areas that for years have been under consideration and just haven't moved. And we think that they're ripe for moving right now. And they've had the public input. And uh, it's now up to the administration, Department of Interior, CQ, the president to uh, move forward on these. I want to take a step back and ask a, a big quick picture question of both of you. But I want to start with and say, since your group is a bit more I guess you could say conservation adjacent, and that is uh, your assessment of how conservation groups are doing with the reckoning that is happening right now over a past that is exclusionary at best and outright racist in many examples. We've seen recently Ben Jealous, the former head of the NAACP, head over and is going to be the next president of the Sierra Club. How are conservation groups doing with that reckoning and with a a pivot to what is hopefully a more inclusionary future? Yes, thank you. And uh, I definitely can't speak for, of course, <laughs> if you will, traditional conservation groups, my hope and prayer, because I don't see any other way out of this, right, if we don't get this right is that um, I think what we're trying to do here at this coalition is recognize reality. Um, and hopefully move on, uh, recognize harms, uh, recognize the traditional conservation's long history of racism, uh, the exclusion of people of color in indoor, out, outdoor spaces, uh, and the need to center racial equity in all of our efforts by including and supporting the diverse communities 
of our society that we are um, aiming to continue to do. Uh, conservation efforts that truly value uh, and empower a diversity of voices, perspectives, and approaches will be better fit uh, for this work and obviously will have better returns for both people and the planet and, and all species. Uh, frontline and communities of color hold a fundamental role in the conservation of biological diversity, which is the irony, uh, the protection of all natural resources and our human health. Uh, the, the community story is a very vital one. Um, and what we also know is that campaigns that have been successful, movements, I should say, that have been successful, have always had a strong grassroots core to them. Uh, the ones that maybe we appreciate and the ones that maybe even I personally don't, <laughs> but you have to appreciate the groundswell and there's always that common thread. So there's no way to do this um, in the type of monumental paradigm shifting way. So there's an ethical side to this, but then there's just, you know, our human connectivity that uh, we should be able to work much better together uh, in order to achieve these goals. But there is a history there, right? Again, of the closeness uh, of living and working among the land uh, for for generation after generation and our, our, our Black, our Brown, our Indigenous, our frontline uh, communities of color, that again, that historical context uh, really lends well in, a, in an important way uh, to this movement. We are trying to create, quite frankly, a a brand new movement, mm -hmm. one that potentially we've never witnessed before. Um, we can first develop shared language, for example, uh, on how to discuss these issues. That's a very important part. Um, one's definition of even the word movement I'm using could be very different sure. uh, to someone else. And so we can have, um, you know, uh, honest conversations about what we're talking about and what it is that we are looking to achieve and for whom. Uh, governance, again, is a key point here. So equity and conservation is a matter of governance and includes recognition and respect for all engaged and impacted by decisions and their human health and resource rights. Uh, this process in advocating for more inclusiveness for, for among these uh, movements is, is not, um, again, non-negotiable. It's essential as far as we're concerned. Um, equity and procedure is also critical, I would add. So participation, how we're holding each other accountable, um, and uh, equitable cost-benefit distribution of benefits. That's something else. We have a whole portion of uh, a work group or focus of our work that uh, is expected to grow by specifically having some support funds that we can then make available to community-oriented efforts that are showing promise of helping on these indicators that we care so much about. And uh, intentional efforts are important for, again, the ethical reasons here, effective conservation, and applying both to uh, conservation actions on site and to complementary actions designed to support, you know, stewardship initiatives, um, local schools. I mean, there's many, many co-benefits here by us, again, uh, getting this right. Mark, same sort of question to you. What are the next steps then for a conservation movement, uh, if you will, that has been focused on just conservation issues? You are really leading the way, broadening that definition of what a movement is to be much more inclusive of other other areas like public health that may not have been considered part of conservation before. What what are the next steps? for that movement overall? 
Yeah, well, you always you hear words like DEI, mm-hmm. and we wash over you know that they represent diversity, inclusion, equity, and and also justice needs to be in there. And so when it comes to diversity, uh, groups like Green 2.0 who've really put a spotlight on the hiring when it comes to environmental and conservation organizations and government entities and their success of bringing in and and maintaining staff at the senior level um, at the as board members full-time staff heads of organizations their research has shown that uh, while efforts are being made there really there's a there's a trickle that in the number that we need but even worse than diversity which it, at least it's it appears like everyone's making a concerted effort and but it's happening slowly because you only have so many staff positions and you have to wait for people to leave in order to change the makeup of your staff and so these things happen slowly but we're we're pushing with groups like green 2.0 but then you have issues like inclusion where suddenly you're adding new people of color but you don't have the culture the community to be able to properly absorb and and provide what those um what those communities need if they're not going to be um, essentially falling in line with a with a, a traditional uh, white the, the way things always white work. supremacy culture yeah and so that's been very difficult there's been a lot of fallout of staff leaving um, mm-hmm. in in several organizations and and uh, and then the toughest part of all this is the actual equity and and providing equity between the different movements. And so when it comes to equity of funding, we know historically that like 3% of environmental funding has gone to communities of color. And now the theory, the, the, the data is showing that it's, it's rising, but it's only still rising to maybe eight, 9%. And so there's groups like the Donor of Color Network that have created a climate pledge for environmental organization foundations to pledge that they'll give 30 percent which is still less than what they should 30 percent of their uh, funding to communities of color and I, I i was at a meeting the other day when uh, danielle dean from the bezos earth fund said there will be no justice 40 without donor 30 and so being able to make sure that we build a more equitable power and 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 resources for communities of color is going to be vital for us to be victorious in the time that we have remaining to overcome the climate crisis. Thank you for that answer. That was really interesting. Um, I think that's a good place to leave this conversation. I'm sure we could talk um, about this for hours, but um, we know our listeners probably expect about a 45 minute podcast from us by now. Um, so Insay Weatherspoon with the Children's Environmental Health Network and Mark Magana with Green Latinos, co-chairs of the America the Beautiful for All Coalition. Thank you both for being here today. Thanks, Kate. Thanks, Aaron. Thank you so much. Our good news this week is that the federal government just announced $350 million in funding to build wildlife corridors along busy roads and add warning signs for drivers. The funding is available to Native American tribes as well as state and local governments and was part of the bipartisan infrastructure law. This builds on great work going on at the state level to reduce the number of wildlife killed on roads in the West. 
For example, New Mexico lawmakers passed legislation this spring to set aside $100 million for conservation projects, including building the state's first wildlife highway overpasses for mountain lions, black bears, bighorn sheep, and other wildlife. And that's it for this episode. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening to this. If you didn't like what you heard, complain to us on email, podcast at westernpriorities.org. You can also find links to learn more about the Justice 40 Accelerator Program and the America the Beautiful for All platform uh, in the show notes to this episode. And of course, you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and now TikTok. Just search Western Priorities on all of those, and we should come up. If we don't, please let us know. Thanks so much to Insay and Mark for joining us to chat about making conservation more inclusive. And thank you for listening to The Landscape. <laughs>